This is That's Not a Story, a five-part podcast on what makes journalists tick and the world they work in. By the end of this series, you should have a good understanding of the challenges facing the media and why or why not a journalist might be interested in the stories you have to tell. I'm Rachel Williamson. I'm a foreign correspondent in journalism rehab, and I actively enjoy breaking unsolicited embargoes. And I'm Karis Palmer. I'm a journalism idealist, and I like to found media companies in my spare time. Welcome back, listeners, to our final episode, where we root out the green shoots in the media sector. Karis, you and I are still making money from the media industry. Not by blackmail, surprisingly, even though you are now retraining as a baker. Yeah, so there's still something here, I think. This episode, we've got Kiwi Export in the US, Hamish McKenzie. He is a co-founder of Substack, one of the more promising media innovations around today. And we've got Anthony Clan, who quit The Australian after several of his stories were stonewalled to start his own site, The Klaxon. He is part of a growing number of most big men starting news sites in Australia with a very similar method of telling news. But we'll get to that in a tick. First, Karis, let's chat about why there's optimism to be had for the media sector, not just because Australia and the world are beginning to force the big internet platforms to start playing nice with media companies. Hmm. The one constant in the media sector has been ongoing change, much of it shrinking the number of working journalists. But this time, some of those journos quitting or being made redundant from bigger companies are branching out on their own and finding a way to make a living. And with that's come a growing number of platforms supporting individual journalism. It's a reason for hope. Rachel, you used an early version called Beacon Reader in 2014 to go to Somaliland and write about the collapse of oil exploration there. I did. At the time, Beacon Reader was also being used by salaried journalists to monetize their experiences and stories which didn't make it into their publication. It was a combination of Kickstarter for journalism and what Substack is today, but it didn't survive. So what we've got left now is Patreon, which lets creatives set up their own site and ask supporters for donations. And as we've been talking about, Substack, which is more newsletter-based. Journalists like Glenn Greenwald, who broke the Edward Snowden whistleblower story, and the Rolling Stones' Matt Taibbi are using these sites to speak directly to their audiences and earn an income. As an aside, even these are being commoditized, which you might remember us talking about in our last episode. Ghost is a new newsletter platform which is actively marketing itself as a cheaper substack. And as a wide editorial pointed out not long ago, eventually some of these big writers like Taibbi will gravitate back to the publications they left simply because these have bigger readerships. And then there's the fact that there are only so many newsletters you and I have the capacity to read and pay for. In the meantime, Substack's still the dominant player for individuals branching out. And we took some time to chat to co-founder Hamish, who's got some really interesting ideas about what's driving this shift to supporting individual writers. Thanks for joining That's Not a Story, Hamish. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. So, Hamish, you came to start up Substack after a successful career as a journo and then a stint as an in-house writer at Tesla. I'm interested in what it was about your career that helped germinate the idea for Substack. Yeah, I was one of a couple of people, actually three ultimately, who started Substack, um, but I was the only non-technical person. I had this career as a journalist 
the last staff reporter job I had was working for a technology news site that wrote especially about startups in Silicon Valley. And there I wrote a lot about startups and technology companies that were trying to kind of save the media or reinvent parts of the media or help writers publish their work. And in that job, I saw a bunch of approaches that came really close to being good and successful, but ultimately were not successful. And so I kept a close interest in that for a long time, uh, even after I left that job. And of course, as a writer myself, I've done various jobs in journalism, including being on staff at publications online and magazines and worked at newspapers. And I've written a book and been a freelancer. And so I've known all the challenges and struggles that come with trying to make a living from journalism while also having a deep appreciation for the importance of journalism. And so I've been highly motivated to try and help fix some of the things that have broken down in the business models that support journalists in the last 20 to 30 years, especially. Okay. So many journalists, including us at times, are pretty cynical about the state of this industry. Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? I'm optimistic now. For a long time, we've kind of been in this defensive crouch where we've watched the main business model erode under our feet. And we've just kind of been fending off death, but generally waiting for it to come. I'm talking about journalists and people in the media industry. And it hasn't been clear what might ever replace that model that we once uh, relied on and that was once so reliable, which was basically an ad supported model for the media. But now that Substack is getting some success uh, and it's still early days and who knows where this can go. Uh, but I'm seeing journalists come to Substack and be supported directly by their readers and maintain total editorial integrity and independence and actually get paid really well. And I think given that this is just the beginning of what is potentially a new and exciting ecosystem, I think there are so many more places it can go and that the signs being this good this early suggests that there are great things ahead. Why is Substack there? This has been tried before, you know, companies, um, you've got Patreon, you've got outfits like Beacon Reader, which folded. Why is Substack going to not be another one of those now shuttered or sort of marginal business models? Well, Patreon is working. We are in some ways following in its footsteps. There have been others, Beacon's one of them, and I know those guys. There are some that are like, this is like one of the examples of a, a company that has come along and came close with the model, but didn't quite crack the code. And I think some things about Substack that have helped uh, crack the code are, it's just really simple and the timing is right. So on the simplicity side, it, you can start a paid newsletter. You just publish to the web and those posts can be emailed out to your readers and you can get paid in subscriptions. The readers just decide whether or not they want to pay to support your work and get the content that you make available to your subscribers. And that whole thing is very simple and transparent. And there are some writers in the world who could just succeed from the strength of their devotion in the audience. Patreon's showing the, um, the, same, the same dynamics to be true. And I think partly that's because of culture shifts. Uh, it didn't used to be the case that people were happy to pay for content online or accustomed to paying for content online. Uh, but things like Netflix and Spotify and Patreon have come along and normalized it. But also I think in terms of 
how the timing has changed. People are fed up with their experiences consuming content and news online. People have grown to be rightfully skeptical about the effect that being so reliant on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, has on their minds and has on society at large. And so there is more of a hunger now for models that provide alternatives and models in particular that are not based on advertising, which lead to these engagement machines that seek to kind of addict you to their news feeds. So something that's based on direct payments between readers and writers can be really appealing. And I think people are taking to it and, and, and seeing that it's a much better reading experience and can help the writers do better too. So Hamish, you've put a big bet on subscription and I've, you know, we've heard you talk a lot about this and coming from a, a, a place where paywall was put up as a kind of savior of media and, you know, has been heavily criticized by some people and you're proving that it can work. I'm interested in how you came to the conclusion that just subscription as opposed to a mix of subscription and advertising or other models might be the most sustainable option for a niche publisher. We think there's a lot of power in the focus and having just one model that supports the work. So if you're an individual creator and Substack is oriented towards individual writers and there are, there are groups working together on Substack, but individuals especially do well, then you don't really want to be thinking about uh, how do I sell ads and how do I please advertisers and how do I create the kind of content that does well with ads? It's better to just be very focused on the work. And if you sell subscriptions to your work, you can kind of just have the subscriptions turn on as an option and be focused in, focusing all the rest of your attention on doing great work, the sort of work that builds trust and respects people's attention and that ultimately leads them to falling in love and wanting to pay, not actually just wanting to pay, being happy to pay to support this kind of work that makes their lives better. I also think there's a difference with the paywall. It's not just this big dumb paywall that goes down in front of the content and everything's behind it, or it's, like, it's not just like a muted paywall where someone gets to sample three articles and then that's their lot done for the month and they have to pay up to get more. It's more that the writer gets to choose where the paywall goes down on a story per story basis. And sometimes they might have a, an option to subscribe, but publish all their stories for free and just offer the people the chance to pay to kind of support this work or be part of the community or be part of this mission alongside of them. And that is really effective in itself. Yeah, it's really interesting. In some ways, you are changing the ecosystem yourself by kind of pushing around the boundaries. I'm interested in if you think the COVID crisis might push more outlets towards subscription. And I think the, the media industry and the giants in particular were already shifting towards subscriptions and that's a, a good model for them. And COVID has just accelerated those trends. All of a sudden, the bottom has fallen out of the ad market the ad revenue that they may have depended on for a good portion of their business isn't around. And so instead they focus more on subscriptions and that gives them less vulnerability to the fluctuations of the ad market. What are people willing to pay for? You, you see this all the time. And is it true that only about 10% of readers of any publication will actually stump up a subscription? We see it's pretty common that not, 10% of readers, but 10% of people who sign up to be on your mailing list will pay to subscribe. You did use the word only 10%. I think 10% is a huge number. You compare it to conversion rates in Fair. sort of any other industry. <laughs> yeah. So like if you have, if you can get, get 10,000 people on your mailing list, 
you can kind of expect that a thousand will pay. And if you can get a thousand people to pay you, then that's enough to, you know, pay you $50 a year, or even a hundred dollars a year, then that's enough to support your work and living. We say a lot is that people aren't really paying for content. They're paying for this relationship with a writer who they love or trust. And so we encourage writers to make their best, most accessible work free because that's the work that will go out and do the rounds and be shared around a lot and help build up their mailing list, which is the base from which they will ultimately draw their paying subscribers. And then those paying subscribers are not looking to get content that has been locked away only for them. They're looking to feel like they're more part of this mission with you, the writer who they love or trust. And they want to feel like a sense of closeness and intimacy in some cases. So they want it. Those readers are your fans and they're happy to go into the, into the weeds with you or into the arcane details. And that opens up really interesting possibilities because then you can kind of have your cake and eat it as a writer, like going for really wide reach with your popular stuff and really uh, deep engagement with the stuff that is just for your true believers. So that's, that's obviously the best way for an individual to use Substack. But is it really that, you know, newsletters about cute dogs and um, celebrity gossip will perhaps do better than uh, something else? So far, we haven't seen any celebrity gossip or cute dog newsletters dominating in, in the Substack okay. ecosystem. <laughs> <laughs> so, here's, yeah, here's your chance. What we think actually is that those are the things that have dominated in, in an ad-based media ecosystem where scale and reach and sort of appealing to, to the lowest common denominator has been an advantage. But in Substack world, it's almost more of an advantage to be really narrow and own a niche where you can have a highly differentiated perspective and voice and where you can serve maybe a, what might be a smaller audience, but a more deeply devoted audience. Since devotion is the oil that makes your machine run in this world because devotion translates into subscription dollars. Okay. Lastly, what tips would you give people looking to publish directly to specialist audiences? Yeah, my best advice is to start, don't overthink it, just start publishing. Decide uh, if you can on what beat it is that you are gonna own better than anyone else in the world. And usually that will mean it's something that's at the intersection of something. <laughs> so rather than just being a specialist in economics, maybe you're a specialist in the economics of knitting and write about that and go deep on it and keep iterating in response to the feedback you get from your readers. And crucially, make sure you're capturing your reader interest in the form of a mailing list because that mailing list is the best asset you can have as a writer, because that is your community. That is your community of people who are interested in your work and interested in what you have to say. And it can't be messed with by any employer or social media algorithm or any institutional change. Thank you so much, Hamer. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. The other side of the story are the green shoots we're seeing in Australia, specifically around an almost grassroots surge in investigative journalism. It's journalism told in a very specific way. It's outraged. Some of it really dials up the hyperventilated communication style pioneered in US hard right sites like Infowars, and it's framed to tap into readers' emotions. But within each story is a real kernel of news, no matter how it's framed. In Australia, it's become popular across the political spectrum. 
I can think of Michael West's self-titled site. Uh, there's former crikey journalist Cirque and Ozturk's True Crime News Weekly on the left. And Anthony Clan's The Claxon is further to the right. And love him or hate him, Jordan Shanks, who runs Friendly Geordies, did some really interesting work this year with Callum Foote at Michael West Media. They uncovered how New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro took control of the Queanbeyan Italian community's Marco Polo Social Club. Other sites that we've seen are Boiling Cold in Western Australia, covering oil and gas, run by Peter Milne, and then the Terrier, which is uh, from journalist Carol Altman. Carol writes deeply about issues in Warrnambool in a hyper-local grant-funded news site to provide local information, basically because regional papers have been cutting back or disappearing altogether. And just this week, we found out about the South Gippsland Voice, which has been hiring journalists in what they're calling a newspaper startup. So Anthony Clan says this trend of individuals going out and starting their own investigative sites is because big media companies have given up their core role of providing true information and instead are chasing the money. Thank you very much for joining us today, Anthony. Thank you, Rachel. So can you tell us why you started The Claxon? I started The Claxon. I've been a journalist for 20 years. I spent 15 years at The Australian uh, investigative journalist for the past 10 years or so. And I got to the point where I was being suppressed and I couldn't get out extremely important information for the, for the public. So the only way I could do that was to sort of go elsewhere. So I um, approached pretty much all the other major media outlets and none of them would, would take on the stories for whatever reason. So I, I realized it was um, up to me to set up my own site. Why do you think these other news outlets didn't want your stories? Okay, so there's a couple of reasons. The main reason that I realised I had to leave my former employer was I was told to dig into the superannuation industry, which I did, which I sort of relished the opportunity because I knew there was a lot of issues there and it sort of was the sort of thing you need to have editorial backing for. So they wanted me to do that and I did that and came up with some remarkable information. We ran it on the front page quite a, quite a few times and then all of a sudden it stopped when I got really close to the bone as in exposing it for what it was. And it was obviously all the bank funds, BT, Westpac, CBA, that were doing all the, the illegal activity. And it was illegal, is illegal activity. And they've got a lot of money to throw around. So they just, you know, taking out ads and doing special projects and all sorts of things and all shut down. Same, same thing with, with Fairfax. So there's that. And the second reason is that it's quite complicated. So because you've got newsrooms that are, are on their bare bones, there's only a couple of newsrooms really that can tackle this sort of thing. And it's probably the Australian and the Sydney Morning Herald, the Fin Review, the Age, and none of those would, would run it at all or even entertain it. So when I got to the, that point, I realised it was um, up to me to go and do it myself. Can you tell us about your audience? How big it is? Do you make any money from your site yet? And can you describe your tone? Sure. So we may, we have, like, I don't know, about 30,000 audience, about 30,000. So we've, yeah, we've been going, I don't know, for four or five months now. So that's sort of growing steadily and, and quite, you know, quite strongly actually. So I expect it'll be double or triple that by the end of next year, going, you know, looking at other, other outlets and what they've done and, and what their trajectory has been. But it got to the point now where it's, you know, it's, it's coming along, it's coming along all right. I'm, I'm still on the job seeker, but, um, you know, hopefully not for much longer. So that begs the question, you are going to need some lawyers. You're writing about some pretty big companies in Australia. So I imagine you have um, some pretty expensive legal fees already. 
No, and I have spent a lot of time with 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 media lawyers. I've got um, I was the most legal person at News Corp for a number of years. I remember them saying, so I've had something like hundred and plus defamation threats. Now, defamation laws in Australia are, as we know, way over the top, and they're just routinely abused to to shut down public debate against the public interest. So I have received one defamation threat, which we tweeted. They, they were threatening an injunction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We tweeted and haven't heard back from them since because they were completely in the wrong and they just wanted to shut us down and they realised that wasn't happening. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. There are plenty of top-notch lawyers and barristers who have behind the scenes have come came to my aid when that happened, saying they were very keen to, to stand up pro bono and, and defend it if it came to that. Truth is 100% defence. So nothing I'm writing is defamatory because it's all truthful. But traditionally, lawyers will come after people who are doing this just to shut them down. But the Claxon doesn't have any assets, so it'd be a waste of their time if they were just trying to do that. I think people are realising that, that we won't be silenced and bullied into submission because we're right. If we're wrong, we'll correct it immediately uh, and, and, and do everything completely ethically. But that, that hasn't come up yet. They can take us, take me to court. I mean, go for it. Let's bring it on. I mean, I've got... Um, pro bono lawyers and don't have any assets so you know if we're in the right we're in the right and we'll, we'll, we'll defend it to the end and what motivates you anthony to keep doing this despite the challenges we've got so many people coming to us with amazing stories and support and there's a big there's a big movement on the go and i don't really i don't think the the existing media has really got its head around at all what's got what's going to happen over the next few years at the heart of this problem is that we had the internet, of course, we've, we've spoken about that for years, millions of miles of copy being written about it. But what the papers have done now, the major papers, the major commercials, instead of doubling down on their core strength, which is telling people what's going on, the truth, you know, getting to the heart of it, they've thought, well, look, there's, there's no other players. There's, there's not much money in media. So it's, we've got a monopoly, more or less. Uh, well, there's just a, you know, there's a handful of us now. So we can just basically suppress stories and put a hand out to the Westpac, BT, whatever, behind the scenes, get a bunch of cash. And that's what they're doing. They're basically selling their integrity to money behind, you know, not even behind the scenes half the time, but that's what's going on. So that's why you've got this buildup of other stories and it's going to come out somewhere. And it's going to be in publications like, like the Klaxon where it comes out. So what they're doing is they're selling off, they're selling off the farm and they're going to end up in the medium term in a lot of strife because they're just hastening, doubling down on the existing problems with an even worse one to get a short-term sugar hit. And I'm saying, I'm not, this is not even being necessarily overly cynical. It's just, I've seen it firsthand. I know exactly what's going on and it's, it's terrifying, but I mean, also it's a great opportunity for us and others to get out there and get the truth out there. And I think at some stage, they, the, the majors will have to pull their heads in or just go the way of the dinosaur. We'll see. You're one of a, a number of men. And it's, as far as I can see, it's all men who have started their own site, you know, focusing on uncovering these stories that, the mainstream press is unlikely to run. Why do you think it's men? Yeah, I, I honestly haven't hadn't thought that through, but I guess you're probably right. I don't know, I don't know if it's necessarily a trend. It might just be a coincidence, or it might be a reflection of investigative journalists more male or something. There might be might well be a systemic bias in there, but I I, I couldn't tell you to be honest. I imagine if people like Adele Ferguson are shut up for too long, they'll be out there doing the same thing. So might change very quickly. <laughs> it could, it could. So now that you've had a, you know, a crash course in being your own media mogul, <laughs> um, <laughs> where do you think the opportunity for you lies in terms of revenue streams? And I'm interested in if you feel like 
it should be more donation to support your work or actual subscription and whether you make a distinction between those two things? Yeah, so what I've done, I've I just sort of deliberately followed what Michael West, Westy had done and what the Guardian Australia does because I just sort of can see that there's a lot of goodwill and um, people are increasingly realising that the, the integral role that media plays democracy but beyond that that how badly the existing media so much of the existing media is failing the public and so on the back of that i think it's it's very promising um our trajectory and um, i'm quite certain within a matter of months maybe three four months um it'll be enough to support you know myself and maybe even sooner and then with any luck the aim is by the end of next year it'd be great to put someone on and have a couple of us out there doing the same thing because I think the more people we get to and the more and more people read our stories and read the next story and next story and they see that we're not just a flash in the pan that we're here for good and we've got a lot of um, institutional knowledge and a lot of you know we've been around for a while and it's it's quality and it's right and it's making a difference then um, I think more and more people will get on board uh, so I think that's sort of the, the model really uh, I don't have any intention of putting up a paywall um, purely because I, I think everyone deserves to have the media and I don't think there'll be many people who, who deny that Obviously, it needs to be funded, but I think this way, it's just bare bones. It's just me, right? I, we don't have any expenses other than mm. myself and plugging my laptop into an electricity point. So that's it. Mm-hmm. And what are your tips for journalists like you looking to go out on their own? If people are confident that they've got good stories to tell and, you know, they, they want to do it, I'd say go for it. How do you market yourself? That's a good question. And, and I, I've just been... Because it has been organic, I've just been putting the stories up and I've been run off my feet just getting the, you know, the next story out and the next story out and, and that sort of thing. So I haven't really, I haven't needed to do much marketing as yet because it's just been on Twitter. Better than any marketing is a good story because it's, that is the marketing. Because people go, what's that? Like you don't, you don't flip the newspaper to look at the ads, you look at the news. So it's, it's marketing itself. Thank you so much for joining us, Anthony. We really appreciated having you on. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you, Karis. Appreciate it. So what does this mean for you? You as a reader or you as a company who wants to engage with the media? Don't overlook journalists who are going out on their own. They're forging strong relationships with readers who could also be your audience. Support independent media in your areas of interest. That will help ensure media diversity. This is good for readers who have more than just a handful of places to go for news. It also expands the amount of news which is told about your area. And it's also good for brands who aren't restricted to a small number of gatekeepers. And finally, if you're thinking about starting your own news thing, a real news thing, not just content to drive clicks, pick a niche and start digging. It doesn't have to be a groundbreaking piece of investigative journalism like the pedophile pre-scandal. It might simply be filling a gap once filled by a now shut down newspaper. So there you have it. That's a wrap on our five-part podcast. We hope you found it valuable. We've certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. There's been a lot of causes for pessimism in the media industry over the last 10 or 20 years, but I believe that there are many reasons to be optimistic. There are a lot of opportunities available, and like any industry that's been disrupted, you've just got to think creatively to take hold of them. You've been listening to That's Not a Story with Rachel Williamson and Karis Palmer. Our theme music is by MBB. 